So this morning we start our big adventure through Isaiah. We're going to start at chapter 1 and you'll find that on page 1060. I'll just be reading the first 20 verses. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah the son of Amoz saw during the reigns of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear me, you heavens, listen earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness. Only wounds and welts and open sores. Not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. Your country is desolate. Your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Sion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. Listen to the instruction of our God. You people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, you have asked Who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourself clean. Uh, Take your evil deeds out of my sights. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. 
take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah is a large book that starts at the beginning of the 300 year long prophetic period in the Old Testament. It acts as a sort of overture to the whole period, laying out God's agenda and purposes in the present, in the, in the immediate future, as well as to the Babylonian exile and the return. There is a remarkable sweep of events foretold by Isaiah's prophecy, some of which are yet to be fulfilled, and they all culminate in a glorious future. Judah has experienced years of prosperity and growth under Isaiah, but times are changing. There are problems within as well as external enemies, and these will raise big questions Big questions that only God can answer. This morning we're looking at chapters 1 to 5, but our main focus will be on chapter 1. And this will raise a major question which confronts Judah back then, us now, and all people. But before we commence, let's pray. Uh, Gracious Father, we come to you Uh, seeking to learn from you, uh, seeking to know you better so that we might love you more. Uh, Please come and help us to listen and help us to understand. We don't want to be like the people in Judah who don't know you. We long to know you. So please teach us now, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a great country at a great time. We are truly blessed. Australia's long-term economic growth is almost unparalleled. 26 consecutive years of economic growth, something that very few countries can boast. We live in a prosperous society. But I already hear you thinking, that's not the full picture. And you're correct, it's not. Because prosperity embodies an unseen danger. Australia's long-term growth has fueled materialism and a sense of individualism. And this growth has made our society not more equal, but more unequal. There has been amazing economic growth in the wealthy. But at the same time, there's been enormous growth in the poor the underemployed, the welfare dependent. The top 1% control more wealth than the bottom 70%. In 
In recent years, there has been a rise in anxiety and fragmentation that has led to distrust. Distrust of political leaders, distrust of institutions which are susceptible to corruption. Thus, there's been distrust recently in banks, distrust in the institutional church, and there has been an ongoing increase in the rejection of faith. The big question has become, who can we trust? Who can we trust? On the surface, all looks good. But not that too far down, we see that we are a troubled, a wounded, a sick society. We're in the throes of an obesity epidemic. And many, many people are dealing with mental health issues. Who can we trust? This is also the big question of the prophetic period of the Old Testament. Who were they going to trust? This is the question that Isaiah and God deal with in these first five chapters. So we're going to look at the problem, the results, God's solutions and the consequences. In verse 2, God summons all of creation to come and bear witness to what he's about to say. He has something important to say, and it is that God's chosen people, his children, blessed as they are, have rebelled. They are ignorant, foolish rebels. God's people don't know him. Verse 3, the ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. He's calling them donkeys. They are dumber than donkeys. Furthermore, they have forsaken God, spurned him and turned their backs on him, as we see in verse 4. Yet God still loves them. If we were to flip to chapter 5, it's a lover's lament. And it begins this way, with God saying, I will sing of the one that I love. I will sing for the one that I love. God's people do not know him. They don't know their creator, their redeemer, their true king, their lover they do not know him and in part this has been brought on by prosperity their reaction to God's blessing now obviously we would say that we know God don't we, that's why we're here we know God but do we look at our many blessings and daily give thanks Or have we had hearts that have slowly turned from God by the unseen danger of prosperity? Have we fallen in love with our blessings so that we desire them, crave for more of them, worship them? Do we we rejoice in what we have and suddenly 
ignore and spurn the giver of all things. There's a line in a song that I like. No one is safe from the gods we create. They all turn on us. What is our reaction to the blessings that flow from the cross? Are each day we overwhelmed with thankfulness for what God has done for us? This is a real problem. God's people don't truly know him, so they can't truly love him. God goes on with the diagnosis. God's people have been afflicted with a heart affliction. Verse 5, why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole heart is injured. Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart afflicted. Their head and their heart, their thinking and their affections are awry. They refuse to know him. They persist in rebellion. And we know, don't we, that humanity's chief problem is a heart problem. And there is nothing like a spiritual stent or a bypass or a pacemaker that is going to solve our problem. Your whole heart is afflicted, God says. There is nothing other than a transplant, a a, a new heart to resolve our problem. And Ezekiel uh, speaks of that at length in his prophecy. It is a problem for every human, good person and bad person, good king and bad king alike. Uzziah was a good king. He was a good king. But 2 Chronicles 26 says this, After Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord God. Outwardly, we'll see next week that he became a leper. Inwardly, the true problem existed. Spiritual heart failure. It wasn't his leprosy that made him unclean. It was his heart. Jotham was a good king, but he allowed the people to continue their corrupt practices. At best, he was half-hearted. Ahaz was a bad king. We are told in 2 Chronicles 28, in his time of trouble, Ahaz became even more unfaithful. He was hard-hearted. Hezekiah Hezekiah was a great, great king. However, in 2 Chronicles 32, we read this. Hezekiah's heart was proud and he did not respond to the Lord's kindness shown to him. He became cold-hearted. Each of these kings, all of Israel, the whole of the human race is faced with this heart failure, this unresponsive heart that can grow cold and hard towards the Lord God. 
the situation is even more grim, if that's possible. In in verse 6, we are told that from head to toe, there is no soundness in them. No soundness. They and we are totally shot. The result of this problem was that they relied on heartless worship. They offered countless burnt offerings. They attended religious festivals. They prayed and prayed and prayed, but their own attempts for a cure have no effect. God will have none of it. Their problem remains. Their worship is all about appearance and not heart. It's all about effort, not love. It's pretense when God wants true humility. I too am guilty of heartless worship. Going through the motions, not focused on God, not concerned for my brothers and sisters. I suspect you have been there on occasions as well. We need to pray that this doesn't become a coldness or a hardness. Secondly, if we were to look at chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, we would see that they are full, but they remain empty. They are full, but they remain empty. They are full of superstition, divination. They are full of silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures, we're told. They are full of power with countless horses and chariots. They are full of idols. They are full of any self-help program that they can get their hands on. Yet all their efforts are misdirected. In the end, they bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. All their efforts are misdirected. They are looking to themselves rather than God. No one is safe from the gods we create. They all turn on us. This is a question of trust. We are centuries apart, but we share the same root problem. They are trusting themselves to solve their heart problem. Isaiah says in chapter 2 verse 22, Stop trusting in mere humans who have but a breath in their nostrils. Why hold them in esteem? Author Brennan Manning suggests that we should be uh, asking God to develop within us a ruthless trust. A ruthless trust. A a, a trust that stands against all self-pity and self sins. A trust that will have nothing to do with self-indulgence, self-will, self-service, 
self-gratification, self-righteousness, self-sufficiency. Do you have a problem at the moment? Whatever it is, it's likely to be connected to your heart problem. Whatever your problem is, have you entrusted it to God? Or are you primarily trusting yourself and trusting others for a solution? Now, I'm not saying don't seek human help or or don't put in an effort, but first and foremost, are we seeking the help of him who puts every breath in our nostrils? Are we seeking him who loves us like no other and who has proven that love in Jesus? As a church, we need increasingly to develop the practice of seeking God's grace by seeking him, by seeking him, seeking to grow in truth, trust and love. God says, stop trusting yourselves. But God does have a solution. He has a solution for their heart affliction and ours. And it starts in verse 10 of chapter 1 with this. Hear the word of the Lord. We need to actively listen to God. How blessed are we centuries on to have this marvellous gift of God's written word that points to his final word, Jesus. Listen attentively to God. Turn around, turn to him in verses 16 and 17. And at the centre of these two verses, we find these familiar words that we heard frequently in 1 Peter. Stop doing wrong, learn to do right. Do you remember those words from 1 Peter? Stop doing wrong, learn to do right. Verse 17 continues, seek justice, defend the oppressed, uh, take up the cause of the fatherless, uh, plead the case of the widow. Uh, James later refers to this in his epistle uh, as true religion. True religion, caring for the oppressed. So loving God and and actively loving uh, others, especially those who are going through hard times. Of course, stopping wrong and doing right requires us to ask God for his help because we can't do it ourselves. So God wants to be totally involved in their lives, totally involved in our lives. They were resisting his loving advance. What about us? God says, come to me. Come to me for cleansing. Come to me for grace in verses 18 and 20. Come to me so that your stain can be made white as snow. Again, don't resist, but come. Don't rebel, but come. But Judah 
continued to rebel. And so there are consequences. God honours us and respects our choices. But he did not, he will not, be prevented from doing what is right and just. God honours us and respects our choices, but he will not be prevented from doing what is right and just. In verse 7 of chapter 1, it says, Unless they turn to God, they will be overthrown by strangers. This did come about because many of them failed to trust. Many of them failed to hear God's warning. Assyria came and lays them low. And then the Babylonians come, Babylonians come and take them away. But there was grace. Did you notice the hint of grace in verse 9? Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. They are not totally obliterated. God honours us and respects our choices, but he will not be prevented from doing what is right and just. There are consequences and there will be judgment. And judgment is linked to humility. In chapter 2, verse 9, it says, People will be brought low. Everyone will be humbled. The prospect of judgment for us should be seen as a call to humility. A call to humility. There, of course, will be those that take great pride in themselves. And we see this in chapter 3, verse 9. They parade their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them. They have brought disaster upon themselves. Yet at the same time, there will be those who will receive grace. The very next verse, verse 10. Tell the righteous, it will be well with them, for they will enjoy the fruit of their deeds. Now, in all that I've said so far, I suspect that there's nothing that's all that new to us, is there? But that is the real danger, isn't it? That is the real danger. For we stand at a distance and it becomes all about them. We have Jesus, so it's okay. But seriously, how's your heart today? Where's your heart? Have we demonstrated today that we know God more than just as a a casual acquaintance? Is our life, our worship, heartfelt because our hearts have been changed? Life is not ultimately about our intellect, our ability, 
our desire, our effort. It's about love. It's about love. God's love and our response to that gracious love. It's about chapter 1, verse 9, read from our perspective, posts a cross. And it would be something like this. Unless the Lord Almighty had acted in Jesus, leaving some survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. It's about a judgment that oozes grace. God's grace and love have been made much clearer for us in Jesus. I know there are times when I don't crave that grace and I know there are times when I presumed upon that grace. Yet God's faithfulness, love and grace remain. Like me, you may have been trusting God for a long time. And you know what it's like to have your trust wane. Are there other things claiming your trust at the moment? It's difficult, isn't it? Because both prosperity and poverty can cause us to misplace our trust. Both good leadership and poor leadership can cause us to misplace our trust. Problems and peace, both, can cause us to misplace our trust. Daily we need to renew our commitment to trust God. Daily we need to renew our commitment to know him and and to love him. Daily we need to allow the promise of a glorious future in the Lord Jesus uh, to propel us through this exile existence that we are in to propel us through that by trusting. Isaiah for us is the gospel. Isaiah is the good news of God's grace for all those who will listen and trust. It is the good news that there is hope for the hopeless. It is the good news that our perennial heart condition can be transformed the good news that God's promises can be trusted. Who will we trust? Who will you trust? Let us pray. Father, trust seems so easy, yet it's so hard. We know you, we know more of you because you sent your son and yet there are times when we still struggle with trust. Father, thank you that you are with us in all of our life.
that you are with us in our doubting and in our trusting. That you are weaving your good purposes in our lives, the lives of those who know and love the Lord Jesus. Father, as we journey through the book of Isaiah, we pray that we might find our place in there every week, that we might see your grace and know your love and desire to express your love to each other here and to your world. Please do a great transformation in us in the coming weeks. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.